Okay. All right. You're at your friend's wedding, and she's so radiant, and he's so handsome. They are so in love. And their marriage was great for a while. But slowly over time, the passion for each other began to wane. The romance faded. The flowers and love notes stopped. They both tried to stop the slide, but then they gave up and just began to drift apart. He began staying late at the office. The telltale signs were all there, but she ignored them. Then she saw the texts on his phone and confronted him. He confessed the affair. She was devastated. No words could describe the pain of this betrayal. To be no longer sought after, prized, treasured, desired, or wanted. She felt spurned, used, cast aside, shattered. Now God can heal that and any pain. And marriages can be rebuilt sometimes. James here in this text we are going to read today says believers can do the same thing to God. Inflict deep pain in him. Maybe you think this morning that God is impervious to pain and can't be hurt by our infidelity, but he can. Think about when you first came to Christ, that euphoria and joy of asking for your sins to be washed away and they were. Then God put his Holy Spirit in you and you vowed to love and follow Jesus all the days of your life. But then sometime in the future, the honeymoon ended and you got tired of carrying your cross. What's the use of denying myself? No one else is. You didn't answer that prayer, God. And so your love for God begins to grow cold. You develop a roving eye. You're tantalized by the world. You stop going to church. Stop reading your Bible. You don't love God with your whole heart. Another has stolen your heart. You find yourselves in the arms of another lover. In the arms of the world. Our text as we're going through the book of James. Is chapter 4. Verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. So you murder. You covet. And you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the spirit says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, 
and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I think this is the heart of James's letter to this congregation or churches. We, we see his care for them, his pastoral care here. Now, remember, there were no chapter divisions. It was one long letter. And so at 318, at the end of chapter three, we see James talking about being a peacemaker that's needed then and now in the church. There was an obvious lack of unity in this fellowship. Church members were squabbling and fighting with one another. We see that clearly said in verse 2. I've heard of actual fist fights in church meetings. If the murder that James mentions here isn't literal, then it's spiritual. 1 John 3.15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life Abiding in him. What may have been happening was some were asserting themselves as teachers, usurping authority and becoming leaders in this fellowship. They didn't have the calling or the character for that role. And there was a lot of fighting and disputing over this. Typical human behavior. We all want what we want now. We're pleasure seekers, we have desires. That word desires there, Greek word hedon, from our English word that's come into our language, hedonists. Titus 3 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Paul here in Titus is describing pre Christian behavior. But James is mentioning it to the believers. Unfortunately, we continue to battle and deal with our fallen sinful nature our entire lives. And sometimes it raises its ugly head back up in our life again. Earthly wars are being fought over, blocked and unfulfilled desires. But James says there's a war inside each and every one of us. Let me list three desires that are in conflict Within us that cause conflict with ourselves and others in God. The first of those is the desire to have. We want things. We must have them. If someone has what we want, we'll do anything to get it. And the TV ads only increase our desires. Money differences is the leading reason for divorce. Wanting what I want, period. I want that new car. I'm going to buy it. I want that bigger house. I'm going to get it, even though I can't afford it. And once I have it, I realize, wow, the novelty's kind of worn off, and now I'm stuck with this payment. Eve wanted the forbidden fruit. Achan had to have the forbidden spoils of war. Ahab desired Naboth's vineyard. David lusted after Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Someone described yuppie angst as he has his MBA and a BMW and an SUV and a DVR, but he's SAD. Secondly, the desire to feel. 
James says, you spend it on your passions. We desire to feel good, to be happy. Nothing wrong with enjoying life. The Bible says that God has given everything for our enjoyment. The problem is when we make it number one and the driving force of our life. If we do that, we're asking for conflict. The third desire that we all have is the desire to be. Pride, uh, prominence, promotion, popularity. It's all about me. It's the me generation. Frank Sinatra said, I did it my way. We're the big shot that must call all the shots. Christopher Columbus's title was Admiral of the Ocean and Viceroy of India. Catherine the Great would not open her mail unless it was addressed to her imperial majesty. Catherine was the great. And Muhammad Ali was the greatest. And Elvis was the king. And Michael Jackson the king of pop. Look, if you must be something, just be who God made you to be. So how do I keep my desires under control? Firstly, Pray with the right motives, James says in verse 3. Have I prayed about what I want? Often we don't pray. We just go ahead and buy what we want or do what we want without praying. And then if I pray, my motives are often mixed. My motives are not always godly. Or I pray, but then I just do what I'm going to do anyway. Rather than pray and wait on God's confirmation. I haven't always done that. Perhaps you haven't always either. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We see here that God promises to meet our needs, not always our wants. We'd rather fight with our spouse than pray with them, it seems. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life with your spouse? Prayerlessness is often the evidence of pride or laziness. If we really needed God, we would pray more. And if we prayed more, we would worry less. And we would fight less with other people. And we would lust less over things. Second thing that we can do to keep our desires under control is to enroll in the school of contentment. We're going to go to school this morning. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, day one in the school of contentment. God shows me what I really deserve. Death, wrath, judgment, condemnation, hell. Day two at school. I learned, though deserving of hell, my sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. By sheer grace, I'm forgiven. On day three, I learned, not only am I forgiven, but this God wants to have an eternal relationship with me. 
And then on day four, he reminds me that he's always going to meet my needs. So I'm learning to lay down my rights. I'm learning to trust him completely. I'm learning to know that he will always give me what's best for me. And when my desires are out of control, I confess them to him. I repent. Pleasure seeking leads to conflict with other people. We see that in verses one through three. But it also leads to conflict with God. Now we see that in verses four to six. And it's like James turns it up a notch here. He doesn't pull any punches. In verse four, he calls them adulterous people. And actually, the Greek there is the feminine form, adulteresses. And so that, in James's mind, harkens back to the Old Testament, when Israel was considered the wife of God. Jeremiah 3.20 is an example. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. I want you to think on this for a minute. Right now, you are engaged to be married to Jesus for all eternity. That's your position. That's your status. Bride of Christ. So James calls his audience, those listening to him, the enemy of God. Not unbelievers. That's what we would think in our mind. Oh, surely he's meaning unbelievers here. No, Christians. Possibly you or me? Is it possible to become an enemy of God? Yes, says James. Is it possible to commit spiritual adultery? Yes, by our friendship with the world, by collaborating with the other side, by flirting with the wicked witch. By doing that, we put ourselves in a hostile relationship with God and become his enemy. So why is God so upset? If your mate cheated on you, wouldn't you be upset? You would be rightfully jealous. Commentator William Barclay says, it means that all sin is a sin against love. It means that our relationship to God is not like the distant relationship of king and subject, but that it is like the intimate relationship of husband and wife. It means that sin is infidelity to love. And that when we sin, we break God's heart. As the heart of one partner in a marriage is broken when the other callously and deliberately deserts the other. Verse 5 is one of the hardest verses of the Bible to translate. It's, it's really tough to understand. Spirit in that verse is either the Holy Spirit or our spirit. I think it's referring to the Holy Spirit, though it could be our spirit. If it's the Spirit, capital S, he'll tolerate no rival of his affection. His name is Jealous. Exodus thirty four fourteen. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Our God won't play the fool. He won't be a victim of spiritual adultery. He won't sit idly by while you wrap yourself in the arms of the world. What will he do? Declare war on you. Verse 6. 
says God opposes the proud. That's a military term and it's really quite chilling. It means to arrange an attack. If you're flirting with the world right now, God is arranging an attack against you. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. You're going too far here. My God is a God of love. And he loves me no matter what I do. Not when you're for the world. When you walk with God, all the enemies of the world can't stop you. When you are opposed to God, all the allies in the world can't help you. You're committing spiritual adultery. Are you doing that today? Do you have a roving eye? Are you daydreaming about your passions and pleasures? What do you love the most? Who or what are you thinking about the most? Is it God or the world? If it's the world, God is opposed to you and me. Life will be hard. You'll be restless within. So what's the remedy or cure for a damaged relationship with others in God? James is very practical. He doesn't leave us hanging here. He gives us hope. He gives us some things to work on. But he's non-negotiable. His attitude is like take it or leave it. Here it is. God can and will forgive the sin of spiritual adultery. But here's what you do on your part. God is willing. He wants you to come back. His arms are wide open. Here's what you do. Number one, humble yourself, he says in verse 6. Humble yourself. God's grace is greater than any sin. Man, that is really good news. But grace comes by humility. And humility is not putting yourself down, but agreeing with God. God, I have a roving eye. I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. I'm an adulterer. I used to love you. You've been nothing but good to me. I deserve a divorce. Humble yourself. And a great example of that is the tax collector in Luke 18. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And God will do the same to you. Humble yourself. Number two, submit yourself. Submit yourself. Verse seven, this is also a military term, and it means to align yourself under authority. Allowing God to be God in your life, allowing God to be in control, to be the Lord and director of your life. Quit doing it your way. Do you want your will to be done or God's will to be done? All of us sometime in our Christian life have to resolve the question and issue of lordship. Who's going to be Lord? Is it me or him? We cannot serve two masters, Jesus said. Submit yourself. Number three, defend yourselves. Verse 7, defend yourselves against whom? The devil. He doesn't want you to turn back to God. He wants you in his arms, not to hug you, not to dance with you, but to kill you. So resist the devil. That means to take a stand against him. Tell him, get behind me, Satan. Peter puts it like this. 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Maybe you. But resist him and he will flee from you. Quote scripture and he'll leave. Or you leave. Number four, draw near. Verse eight, draw near to whom? To God. Renew your romance once again with God. Jesus says this to the Ephesian church in Revelation. But I have this against you. Jesus is saying this to a church. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Go back to your first love. Spend time with God again. Get back in the Bible and read the word. Talk to him. Worship him alone and with others. Love him for him. Tim Tebow says, if you love your wife, would you only tell her you love her on your wedding day? Or every opportunity you can. I love Jesus Christ. And I want to tell him I love him every opportunity I get. So what happens when we do that? James says he'll draw near to you. Such a wonderful promise. He won't reject you. Even though you've been unfaithful to him. He'll take you back. Number five. Cleanse yourself. Verse eight. Hands represent your work, your actions, your conduct. Heart represents your attitudes, your will. So clean up your act. Stop sinning. Turn from sin. And then number six, James says, get sad. And verse nine. Now, if you look at verse nine... I'll bet there is not one of you that have that verse underlined in your Bibles. It's in nobody's top ten list of favorite Bible verses. It sounds so Old Testament. Yet God wants us to take our sin so seriously we cry over it. When's the last time you cried over your sin? Lots of tears are shed over adultery. But do we weep over sin? I can't remember the last time I cried about my sin. Maybe when I was a young Christian. We cry because we got caught. Not because we broke God's heart. Tears show remorse. A lack of them shows a casual attitude about sin. That's no big deal. It's okay. Everybody's doing it. James actually says, stop your laughing. Maybe they were laughing over their sin. The fighting and arguing, the bickering that they were doing between each other in this church. He says, don't laugh anymore. Mourn over what you're doing. We rationalize and minimalize our sin. And the result in verse 10, good news. Humble yourself, God will exalt you. The way up is down. The way to honor is humility. At God's feet is the highest place because he will lift you up. God wants to forgive you today. Take you on a second honeymoon. 
And as we enter now into communion, this is the perfect opportunity to spend some time. And that's what I'm going to invite you to do before we do anything with communion. Spend some time praying and reflecting. Maybe you need to repent this morning. This is the perfect opportunity before you take communion is to get your heart right with God. So spend a moment or two just in quiet reflection and prayer. And then I will finish with prayer and we'll move into communion.